Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 11 through 16 this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Ephesians 4. And so I want to begin uh, by reminding you what the first 10 verses said. As Paul enters what's going to be a largely uh, imperative half of his letter to the church at Ephesus, after all the indicatives, after all the statements of God's glory in the church, Paul is going to focus on how that should transform our life as, as a body of Christ together and individually as families and individuals where we find ourselves in life. But first of all, as he turns largely from what is true to how it should affect us in this letter, he begins this way in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 10. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the or the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And that flows into our sermon text this morning, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul might sound wordy here. But the big idea is clear. And all the phrases and uh, turns of phrase, they all contribute to this big idea, this big point. By the truth spoken in love, the ascended Christ matures his body. By the truth spoken in love, the ascended Christ matures his body. Now that Christ first descended all the way to death, even death of a cross, all the way to the grave. 
And now that he is not only risen from the dead, but ascended far above all the heavens to the right hand of God, Lord over all, visible and invisible, all rule and authority, what is he up to? In general terms, Paul, in, in the texts we've already preached on, Paul has said he has lavished his church with great grace and with the spoils of his victorious warfare. But what does that look like now? What is Jesus up to at the right hand of God? Well, one primary thing he is up to, Paul now explains. Jesus is the head of a body for whom he descended all the way to the lower parts of the earth, for whom he ascended that he might fill all things. Now, yes, he's pouring out grace on his body, the church, whom he bought with his blood. But how is he pouring out that grace primarily? Well, it's by the truth spoken in love that the ascended Christ matures his body. So let's work through the text. Trust you have that handout handy, either electronically or on paper. That'll help you this morning. First of all, verses 11 through 12. I I think you'll see how this fits in the big picture as we work through it of the truth spoken in love. Verses 11 through 12. First of all, we see Christ's spokesman gifted to his saints. Christ's spokesman gifted to his saints. And he... In the Greek, it's, it's a very emphatic way of saying that one who descended and then ascended, who's gone to the very depths and now has gone to the very heights. He's the one who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, as it is, I'll, I'll have to spend more time, maybe, than I, I wish I had to, to, to explain just these two verses. But actually, I have preached um, in even more detail on these verses about the identity of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, I've done that in a series on the polity, uh, church polity. Um, and so if you want to go back and listen to those, those might be helpful in the future. Harry Eppertrude here says about these introductory verses of our text, he says a further point arises as to the nature of the authority of the gift as we compare Ephesians with Romans and 1 Corinthians. That is, uh, Paul here begins talking about how Christ gave gifts to his church. And there's other places he mentions like Romans and 1 Corinthians where Paul says some similar things but in a different way. So he says in Ephesians... There is an exclusive emphasis on the ministry of the word in connection with the gift. The offices, as descriptive of the gift, are totally word-orientated. The point of reference in Romans and 1 Corinthians is wider, including such gifts as helps, administration, miracles, and healings. End of quote. So the thing I'm trying to point out to you here is it should catch your attention that whereas in other places when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, gifts to the church, in other places he has a wider focus on all kinds of gifts um, 
whether they are gifts of speaking or gifts of service or uh, miraculous gifts. But here, it's very obvious by what he said, by, by what he mentions and what he doesn't, he has a very narrow focus here on the ministry of the word, first of all. And so first he lists the apostles. Jesus personally appointed representatives named apostles to speak and act with his own authority. Pretty big emphasis in the New Testament, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> and I was... I, I looked with some consternation at uh, one, one commentator in particular that's often pretty good, but on this text, he wanted to say, these are apostles in general that we can still have today. I'm like, you just commented on, on how the, that's not the apostles earlier in this epistle, and now suddenly you want to say these are a group of people who are today. No, in this epistle to the Ephesians, Paul has been stressing the apostles of Christ such as he was, the apostles and prophets, is foundational to the church. Uh, the term apostle was not original to the New Testament. It was a well-established term for someone who's given full authority to speak and act in the place of another. To say you're an apostle of Christ is no light thing to say. And so we find that term even used sometimes in the New Testament for representatives appointed by local churches for specific tasks. So it might be the, um, the representative, in that sense, the apostle is the word of a local church. That's one thing. But here we are speaking of Jesus' own apostles. He appointed certain men to be his unique representatives. And that being the case, we must know who these apostles are, and we must heed them. So it won't do, for instance, to say, well, maybe there's apostles today, maybe there aren't. I'm, not, I'm agnostic, I'm not sure. If they are Jesus' representatives, you better know who they are. And you better be sure you're listening to them. <laughs> Sorry if I'm getting my dander up here. <clears throat> apostles, uh, as Harry Uppertrude says, are those personally commissioned by Christ, as were the twelve. Witnesses either of Christ's resurrection or of his person by supernatural revelation, as in the case of Paul. Infallible as to their teaching and confirmed as being genuine apostles by their performance of miracles and by their association with extraordinary gifts such as tongues or prophecy. Uh, Mr. Uppertrude says, Reformed theology has, in my view, rightly categorized these as extraordinary or temporary offices of the church the office ceasing with the death of the apostles and the completion of Scripture. The case for cessation is based on the uniqueness of the office of the apostle and their foundational role as coupled with the office of prophet within the New Testament church. So the apostles, though they are unique in their authority, they were also part of a larger category, the New Testament prophets, which Paul mentions next. The, Christ gave the apostles the prophets, what is a prophet? What was a prophet in Scripture? Well, the role of seer or prophet began in the Old Testament, had a special function for Old Covenant Israel, because they were a nation bound to God by the Sinai Covenant, and the Old Testament prophets reminded Israel of their covenant obligations, and they pronounced covenant curses or blessings upon them. And the prophet was a spokesman for the divine king who spoke to his covenant nation Israel. 
But not only did a prophet's message in the Old Testament have to be in harmony with God's words through Moses, the prophet's message had to itself be the very words of God. No prophet was allowed to fabricate a message from his own mind. Jeremiah is clear on that, for instance. The prophet was an insider in the heavenly court, as it were. He came into the Lord's very presence, his throne presence, and he heard his very words. And those were the words which had to be reported to the Lord's earthly subjects. Thus says the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, as new covenant Israel, the New Testament church needed New Testament prophets. The New Testament prophets communicated foundational Revelation from Christ the King to his church. Which is why, again, in Ephesians, Paul's already said, Ephesians 2, for instance, that we are the house of God or the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Or Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's not saying there that the apostles and prophets simply read God's truth in the scriptures and then applied it to God's people. No, he's saying it was revealed, it was direct revelation to the apostles and prophets in the New Testament age. Throughout the New Testament, we see prophets functioning in that first generation of local churches, instructing them by direct revelation from God. Now, the role of prophets often overlapped with the roles of evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. A man might be a prophet in the New Testament and also a pastor, also a teacher in the church, etc. Same men might perform all these functions, but the unique functions of a New Testament prophet have now ceased. The historical and doctrinal foundation has been laid for the universal church. The gospel message has been amply attested by signs and wonders as recorded in the New Testament. And now it's the role of us as the church to proclaim the written word of prophecy, both Old and New Testament, to proclaim that to the ends of the earth. We don't need new prophets. We already have all we need from the true prophets. So, so far we've described the roles. In fact, I would call it the the universal church offices of apostle and prophet. They are the foundation and they are, I, I would call them offices in the church, but not just for a local church. They are for the universal church. We listen to the apostles and prophets every Lord's day. Because we listen to the scriptures. But now we move to the evangelists. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these. Go back and listen to the related sermons from another time. But uh, now we come to three roles or functions. um, Not necessarily offices in the technical sense. But we come to three roles or functions which are necessary leadership roles in relation to local churches. First of all, the evangelists. That word evangelist is related to the Greek word for the gospel, the evangel. And the Greek word for preaching the gospel. 
An evangelist is a gospel herald. Some see the title of evangelist as also that of a temporary office, a sort of apostolic delegate, uh, like Timothy and Titus and others were for the Apostle Paul. That's uh, I see where people are coming from on that, certainly. And perhaps John Mark could also be viewed that way, that sort of an evangelist in relation to Peter and Paul, both when they were elderly apostles. Um, I think the role of evangelist is not so much an office for the universal church, like that of apostle or prophet, or even a local church office, like elder or deacon. It's not so much that as it is a role particularly focused on gospel proclamation. Now, all Christians ought to spread the gospel. We know that. And don't tell me you're not responsible to. However, um, a man who is given by Christ to the church as an evangelist is a man who is specially gifted to lead efforts of evangelism and or church planting. Incidentally, I think an evangelist will usually find himself either in an eldership role in a church or else in an outreach role under the supervision of other elders. He's not going to be a maverick. <laughs> um, he's going to be part of what Christ is doing in the local church and uh, reaching out from there. So there will probably, probably be a lot of overlap between the role of evangelist and the role of shepherd. But think with me a moment. What are church planters? What are church planters if not evangelists? What are foreign missionaries who preach the gospel in far-off places if not evangelists? Now, speaking of elders, the next rule mentioned basically describes the office of overseer or elder, sometimes also called a bishop or a presbyter or a pastor. Uh, Paul rounds this out by saying Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. The shepherds are one thing, and then I think the teachers are a little broader group. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. It's a convenient little place to see a bunch of these terms come together in what Paul says. Again, we're talking about Christ's spokesmen who are gifted to his saints. And we're taking a little bit of time to plow through this and to understand it. As we think about shepherds, who would this be in the church? Well, Acts 20, first of all, verses 17 through 18. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And then he, he has a long speech here. Go down to verse 28, where he, after speaking of his own example, his own shepherding example among them, he talks to the elders about their job description. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these elders are overseers. That's the word for bishop or overseer. Episcopos. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, literally the word there is, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So this is a, uh, a text we often rightly go to to, to demonstrate. Um, there are other texts that would connect some of these dots, but this connects all the dots. The elders, our overseers, our shepherds. <laughs> there are different terms for the same job description in the church. Likewise, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's saying, I exhort the elders to do something. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, that's the verb form of that word for overseer or bishop. Be overseer, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, the image of a shepherd comes from the Old Testament. Shouldn't be a surprise. A political or religious ruler was often spoken of as a shepherd. And of course, the Lord God was the great shepherd of Israel. A good shepherd knew how to exercise authority over the flock to keep it on the right track and beat off the wolves. But he also knew how to be gentle and tender with the sheep in his role. So there's two sides to the image. Strength and gentleness, right? Strength and nurture. Both things. As Clinton Arnold says, this image probably stems from Jesus himself who taught that he was the good shepherd, John 10, 1-18. But then Jesus commissioned Peter, and by extension others in leadership in the church, to feed my sheep and take care of my sheep, John 21, 15 through 17. From Jesus' example in his Good Shepherd discourse, we know that this involves knowing people intimately, John 10, 3 and 14, leading them, John 10, 4, protecting them from wolves, John 10, 7 through 10 and 11 through 13, and loving them enough to sacrifice one's life for them. 10, 11 through 13, and 15. As the good shepherd, Jesus' leadership contrasted sharply with the many bad shepherds Israel had throughout her history. Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah prophesied a time when God would give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge, knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 3.15, end of quote. Hebrews 13, 17, we see the exhortation to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And that word for leader there is a term for a ruler, just like we see in Matthew 2, 6, where the prophet Micah is quoted, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. That's, there's that word for leader, Hebrews 13. From you shall come a leader or a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, while a shepherd or a pastor, that's what the word pastor means, shepherd. While they are a congregational ruler, Paul says here the shepherds and teachers. So teacher is a gifted instructor of some sort. 
And Paul didn't say the shepherds and the teachers. Now he says the shepherds and teachers. That seems to indicate there's frequent overlap between these two roles or functions. Elsewhere, Paul says overseers or elders must not only shepherd, but they must be competent to teach. So not everyone who's gifted to teach must be or become a pastor, but all pastors must be gifted to teach. All right, so that was a lot of heavy plowing, heavy lifting. Let's pause a moment before moving on. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2, the church needs gospel heralds and congregational rulers and gifted instructors. We need the gospel to be exalted among us and by us. We need to obey those who watch for our souls. And we need to be taught to observe all things that Jesus has commanded us. This is how Christ builds the church. And this is what church leaders must emphasize as the heart of the church's mission. Gospel proclamation, caring for souls, and thorough Bible teaching. Those three things together. And let me just ask, it's always good to ask us, because we drift, I drift and you drift, in our thoughts and affections. Is this what you're looking for in a church? Is this what you're expecting of your leaders? Or do you find yourself growing impatient with such things, or perhaps even be offended by them at times? Let's be united in our church ministry vision and let's mutually submit ourselves to gospel proclamation and to the care of souls, both giving and receiving it, and to thorough Bible teaching. All right, now we can include verse 12. (laughs) He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry For building up the body of Christ. Or if you want to get a little closer to the Greek. I like the Lexham English Bible. It says. For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry. Or of service. For building up the body of Christ. By the way that word for building up. Is related to. um, Word that's been used earlier. As how the church is the dwelling of God. (laughs) It's a building in that sense. But it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, there are two basic ways to take verse 12. Two different ways. Uh, The first way would be as the ESV interprets it, um, where Christ's spokesman, gifted to his saints, then equipped those saints to carry out the work of ministry or the work of service, so that the body of Christ is built up by what every member in the body does. And in that interpretation, the work of the ministry here is referring to what the entire body of Christ does. The other way to take verse 12, and don't assume which one I'm adopting yet, just just hold on, I want you to see the merits of both, okay? Um, The other way to take verse 12 uh, is that it's giving three descriptions of the function of the spokesman. The apostles, the prophets... The evangelists, the shepherds and teachers equip the saints 
And that's how they do their work of, of serving the rest of the body, their work of service or ministry. Uh, that is their ministry of the word which builds up the body of Christ. <clears throat> well, without choosing between those two conclusions yet, uh, let's look at another text where Paul certainly focuses on the ministry of the word as the work of service that builds Christ's church. Let's look at this. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 17. I'm first of all here um, giving you the flavor of why some would choose that second interpretation. Paul uses these same sorts of words for surface, is actually where we get the word deacon. Uh, These same words for growth and building and work that show up in Ephesians 4. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he is certainly focusing particularly on the ministry of the word and ministers of the word. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, diakonoi. Again, where we get the word for deacon. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Uh, Again, terminology that has been showing up in Ephesians. You, the church, are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, the church, are that temple. In that context, certainly the focus is on the ministers of the word building the church, either with the right materials or the wrong materials, and they'll be judged on that basis on the last day. But again, in Ephesians 4, the work of the ministry or the work of service, it can also refer to service which every part of the body renders. 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service. Is that word for um, service that we're looking at? There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Speaking of everyone in the church. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So the temptation in Ephesians 4 is to jump to one of these two understandings, not because the the text convinced us, but because we have our own preferred emphases. Um, The first interpretation, focusing more on what the whole body does, that's attractive. If we've had bad experiences with a strong clergy-laity distinction, where um, 
maybe the idea is people who aren't the clergy should just sit there and, and just receive, right? And the clergy should do everything. If we've had gotten a bad taste in our mouth from that happening, we may like the first interpretation just naturally. If we want to emphasize lay ministry, the one another's of the New Testament, we'll naturally favor the first interpretation. But if we're reacting against those who minimize the ministry of the word, if we want to emphasize the high calling of those set apart to that ministry, if we want strong ministerial authority in the church, we might naturally favor the second interpretation. Well, I will say that both interpretations can be found elsewhere in the New Testament as important points. And the point of the first interpretation certainly comes out later in our sermon text. That much is clear. Um, but honestly, I can't be dogmatic here. That's my big reveal. Either one is a valid interpretation, and I'm not going to be dogmatic on that point, which one I'm choosing. It could go either way, and maybe my view will solidify in the future, but I will say this. While Paul does stress the role of every member in Christ's body toward the end of this text, that'll come out very clearly, his big point has a lot to do with a certain kind of ministry, which is the ministry of speaking God's truth in love. Toward the end of the text, this becomes something that each of us is responsible for in the end. But there is a big emphasis here on speaking the truth of God in love. And that's why he begins by highlighting those given to the church as ministers of the word. So, I know this has been tough to hang with me this far, but thank you if you have. But listen up. Without the ministry of the word, the body has no nutrition and no strength. That's the big thing that if you've missed it, you've missed the whole point so far. And the ministry of every member in the body has to be consistent with and has to flow from the truth that God breathed out to be preached and taught. It all has to work together flowing from the scripture, from the mouth of God. That's the point. John Calvin has this to say here about it saying that Christ gave these spokesmen. He says the government of the church by the preaching of the word is first of all declared to be no human contrivance, but a most sacred ordinance of Christ. The apostles did not appoint themselves, but were chosen by Christ. And at the present day, true pastors do not rashly thrust themselves forward by their own judgment, but are raised up by the Lord. In short, the government of the church by the ministry of the word is not a contrivance of men, but an appointment made by the Son of God. As his own unalterable law, it demands our assent. They who reject or despise this ministry offer insult and rebellion to Christ its author. It is himself who gave them, for if he does not raise them up, there will be none. Another inference is, is that no man will be fit or qualified for so distinguished an office who has not been formed and molded by the hand of Christ himself. To Christ we owe it that we have ministers of the gospel, that they abound in necessary qualifications, that they execute the trust committed to them. All, all is his gift, end of quote. 
Does the church need more ministers of the word? Oh, yes, it does. So what does Jesus, our Lord Jesus, tell us to do? Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. They are gifts of the master, of the king, from heaven. Yes, we have responsibilities as local churches to properly nourish men whom Christ is gifting in the realm of of the ministry of the word. We have responsibilities not to squander what Christ gives us. But unless he gives these men, we will not have them. Both are true. We need to look to him as the head of the body to supply us with such men. And we need to be earnest in asking him for them. Without, it's not that they're such great people, but without their ministry with which Christ equips them to speak his word rightly, there will be no health in the body. There will not be proper growth in the body. But, lest I get to really preaching, let's keep moving. We can cover the rest pretty quickly, I think. Verse 13. We see as a result of all this, as a result of Christ's spokesman gifted to his saints, we see, secondly, Christ's body united by a mature knowledge of him. Verse 13. Until, in this process, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, John Calvin. It was the apostle's intention to explain what is the nature of true faith and in what it consists. That is, when the Son of God is known. To the Son of God alone, faith ought to look. On him it relies. In him it rests and terminates. If it proceed farther, it will disappear and will no longer be faith, but a delusion. Let us remember what, that true faith confines its view so entirely to Christ that it neither knows nor desires to know anything else. End of quote. If we attain to the unity of the faith, it's because we attain to knowing the Son of God together. We know the same person. That's how we're united. Because we're looking at the same person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how we reach mature manhood in him together. Maturity looks like reaching his stature, the stature of his character, his virtues, as we're looking at him intently. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And if anyone tries to tell you that you need a sort of Christian maturity that gets beyond Jesus Christ, as if that's just basic stuff, They are turning you away from the faith. Colossians 1.27 Paul says, To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, 
and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ is not the basic, the basics of the faith. He is all the faith. Verse 14. As Christ's body is united by a mature knowledge of him, then Christ's people are matured beyond childish gullibility. Apparently, childish gullibility is our default if we don't grow in Christ. And no matter how old you are in human terms, you can be childishly gullible if you don't grow in Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Some would translate that toddlers. (laughs) Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is a big theme that pops up throughout the New Testament. Spiritual infancy. Paul is concerned about the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 in this regard. I can't speak to you as spiritual people, people who are wise in the, in the Holy Spirit, because I have to speak to you as to fleshly people, as to infants in Christ. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, you need to move on from milk to solid food, from elementary teaching to deeper instruction in Christ. Peter says, you need to move on from malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And like newborn infants, desire the the pure milk of the word to grow thereby. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. So don't be little children, toddlers who are so easily fooled, spiritually speaking. who are so easily taken in by silly magic tricks, sleight of hand, who are so gullibly trusting of anyone who comes along and says something to be true. But then there's this picture of a little boat tossed everywhere by every wave that comes along and every wind of doctrine, of teaching. S.M. Baugh, S.M. Baugh says, The figure of blasts of storm winds and of a ship being tossed about and swept along is especially poignant for Paul. It recalls the several storms and shipwrecks he had experienced on the Mediterranean Sea, which could terrify even the most experienced sailors. Paul could certainly understand being swept along by tempestuous rollers, especially considering the small size of the ships of his day. While one may be tempted to think of false teaching in the church as innocent error, and there certainly is such, there is malice to certain forms of doctrinal heresy intended to shipwreck the faith of the naive and credulous, of toddlers, he says. So what are these waves and winds? Well, Paul says... It's human cunning, it's craftiness and deceitful schemes. Don't be blown around and tossed about by every 
wicked teacher that comes along pretending to be godly. Because there's plenty of those. And they, as, as Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they deceive and are deceived themselves. There is such a thing as people making mistakes as they teach the word of God. Uh, even though they're good brethren. But there's also such a thing that's rampant in the spiritual world. There's such a thing as intentional deception. Intentionally mishandling the word of God because of an agenda. And you will fall for it. I don't care who you are. Paul doesn't care who you are. You will fall for it if you don't grow up in Christ. Under the ministry of the word. Again, we'll return to these things at the end in more direct application. But verses 15 through 16. There is, we see Christ's truth spoken in mutual love. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the body working as it ought to work. And this is eventually what will happen until it is perfected when the church is glorified. But Christ's truth is spoken in mutual love, and that's how the body is equipped and grows and matures. As we all know the truth better, we can all speak the truth better to each other in love. So there's this theme of truth spoken. Remember Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, which places the responsibility on each of us in the church. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Oh, you remember when we were in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the disorderly or the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. That's each of us speaking the truth in love, as the situation dictates, right? But it has to be in mutual love. For sake of time, I'll skip Romans 12, 4 through 16. You can look at that in your own time, where Paul expands on this. But I will take you to 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Peter says... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And in that context, you serve each other. And in that context, you speak the truth to each other in love. So again, the big idea of the text, by the truth spoken in love, the ascended Christ matures his body. Briefly, living out this text... 
we have a number of things to quickly walk through. First of all, define church growth by maturity as well as numbers. When you think about church growth, don't only think about the visible stuff. How many people we have attending, how many members. Certainly not just buildings and programs. Think about maturity. This is Paul's focus here. The parable of the, the, the seed and the soils, Luke 8, where the seed is the word of God and it's scattered abroad on different kinds of soils. One kind of soil doesn't receive the word of God at all because the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. But, verse 13, the ones in the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Some people don't have fruit that matures at all because they are only temporary believers, in a sense. But God is after lasting fruit. And he's after maturity in our thinking. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul said, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Grow up. Hebrews 5 and chapter 6, the, the writer to the Hebrews, and some speculate that perhaps Hebrews is actually based on um, sermon material from the Apostle Paul that maybe someone else like Luke wrote down in a certain way. That's one possibility. But if you think of Hebrews as a sermon, he's preaching along about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he, then he just stops in verse 11 of chapter 5, and he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. That's direct. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's a certain kind of preaching and teaching that is necessary for, for people who have not moved beyond spiritual infancy. And it's sad if we can't move beyond that. Because people aren't willing to grow. That's what Hebrews is targeting here. And it says, learn more about Christ. Go deeper in Christ. Don't just stick with the elementary doctrine of Christ. <laughs> Go on to maturity. But a second way to live out this text is to promote church growth by hearing and speaking Christ's truth. 
How do we promote church growth? Hear and speak Christ's truth. First of all, just notice that church growth without God's truth is church cancer. There's a lot of churches that have some degree of cancer. There's a growth somewhere in there, but it may not be good. Church growth without God's truth is church cancer. On the one hand, the church might appear to grow in numbers or in unity or in maturity, but there's a vacuum of scriptural truth. And we may think the church is doing well because we have more members, more programs, more camaraderie, more finances, more people busy with an area of service. But if that kind of body growth is not being produced by the good blood flow of truth spoken in love, of specific doctrine specifically applied, we have to ask whether this growth is healthy or malignant. But to take it further, when there is a vacuum of truth, where people do not want to hear scriptural truth, something else will take its place. 2 Timothy 3, 14-4-4 But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, the, the, the term is being used here as one of these spokesmen for God, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Vacuum of scriptural truth, something else will take its place. And heresy, which are lies masquerading as truth, heresy is like gangrene. Do you know what gangrene is? MayoClinic.org says, gangrene is death of body tissue due to a lack of blood flow or a serious bacterial infection. Or HopkinsMedicine.org says, because gangrene can spread rapidly over a large area of the body, the amount of dead tissue can be quite large. Treating these large areas may result in large areas of scarring, the need for reconstructive surgery, amputation. Severe cases of gangrene may lead to organ failure and even death. So it's interesting. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, promote 
church growth by hearing and speaking Christ's truth. Church growth without God's truth is church cancer. But the positive side of it is those who communicate truth must do so as recipients of truth. You must have the truth before you can give it. And no one is accepted from that. Least of all me. As one shepherd. The focus in this text, first of all, is that Christ has given us as the church gifts, spokesmen from him to whom we must listen, from whom we must learn. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then the result, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. (laughs) The word of Christ has to dwell in you richly before you can teach and admonish one another rightly, speaking the truth in love. You have to have the truth before you can give it. You have to be quicker to hear than to speak. James 1.19, right after James speaks of the word of truth by which God gave us the new birth. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Then the next verse is that famous verse, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We always have to start with how well we are listening to the truth. How well we're taking it in. We can't help anybody if we are puffed up with our own thoughts rather than nourished on Christ's truth. Third, nurture church growth by the affections and actions of love. I think we all know that truth spoken without love is truth misspoken, right? Truth spoken without love is truth misspoken. There's a quote attributed to Martin Lloyd-Jones that says, It is a terrible thing when a man who is right is right in such a wrong spirit that he does more harm than good by being right. And we've all been there. If you don't think you've been there, you're probably there now. (laughs) We can each be technically right, but very wrong in the way we're right. Truth spoken without love is truth misspoken. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, shut up. You're just a loud noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. But when you have love, love also gives the compassion and courage to speak the truth. So if you're tempted not to tell the truth to your brothers and sisters when they need it, maybe you're afraid of what they'll think of you, you're afraid of offending them, or you're afraid of something else, you're not loving them well. Real love in Christ will give you the compassion and courage to speak the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
Galatians 4, 16-19, Paul had to say to the Galatian Christians, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He wanted Christ formed in them, even if they thought he was their enemy for saying what he said. Love gives the compassion and courage to speak the truth. We need the truth together with love, and neither side of that equation is dispensable. Lastly, and this is encouraging, expect church growth from Christ its head. Comparing Christ and his church to how husbands should love their wives, or rather, telling husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church, it says, Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hates his, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Expect church growth from Christ its head. Christ hasn't left us on our own here. He cares for us as much as for his own body. We are his body. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And he'll do it. So pray with confidence. Work with confidence. Looking to Jesus to do the work. Jesus said in Matthew 16, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's doing it. Remember, all this in Ephesians 4 is flowing from Christ the head, seated in the heavens. But he cares so much for each one of us in his body that he gives us what we need from his word. But are you listening? Are you receiving what he has to say to you? That's what you really need, and that's all we need in the end analysis. Christ's word at work in his church as we then speak the truth to each other in love, we will grow up into everything into Christ the head. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have exalted your Son as head over the church, head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Help us to understand what church growth is really about in the mind of Christ. May we long to see his churches full, and may we long to see them grow up in every way into Christ. Help us to be a help and not a hindrance in that work in our own lives and in each other's lives. Help us to be meekly receiving the word which is able to save our souls and to give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. We dare come to you asking such great things because we are in Christ. And if there are those who are outside Christ, please, by his word, show them that they are not acceptable to you and they are in spiritual darkness without Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.